This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming. It's a blessing to be at GYC. It's energizing. And it shows that uh, God's church is alive and well, in spite of all of the problems that exist in the church. Uh, this seminar is going to deal with current issues uh, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church from the perspective of worship. And uh, there are some publications that I would like to recommend uh, to you. They're available at uh, two booths in the exhibit area, uh, the Secrets Unsealed booth, and also uh, the booth right next to Secrets Unsealed, Eugene Pruitt's booth. Uh, before we have our prayer, I want to mention those resources. First of all, the book, The Dangers of Contemplative Prayer. Very important book, The Dangers of Contemplative Prayer, a practice that has entered the church in many areas, very dangerous practice. Uh, the other book is uh, Omega Rebellion. Probably many of you have already read that book. Very, very good book. Uh, I wrote a book titled Worship at Satan's Throne. That, uh, that is a very important book. I believe that every Adventist should read that particular book. And we're going to cover a lot of the material uh, in this seminar from that publication. Uh, then there's another book. <clears throat> which is out of print, but you can find it, uh, if, you, if you Google it, you'll find it in PDF format. Uh, Secrets Unsealed is going to publish this book in hard copy form in the near future because it's a very, very important book. Um, when I went to the seminary back in the early 70s, I had a teacher who you probably have never heard of. His name was Karsten Johnson from Norway. And uh, he wrote a book and I read it back then. I read most of the books that he had written way back then. And when the church started facing these issues recently with contemplative prayer and, uh, and worship styles and things like that, I remembered a book that I read way back then. So I got it out of my library and as I was flying here, I uh, read it again. And uh, it's almost like uh, he was a prophet. I'm not saying that he was, but it's an amazing, amazing book. Way back in the early 70s, he was already diagnosing the dangers that we were facing. Uh, the name of the book is The Mystic Omega of End Time Crisis. This is probably the best book, the one that I would recommend the highest. And uh, you, you need to uh, go once again to the internet and you can Google uh, the name Karsten Jonsen, that's J-O-H-N-S-E-N not O-N, but E-N, and uh, it's called The Mystic Omega of End Time Crisis, and it's so important that uh, I've uh, found out who uh, has the publication rights to it, and uh, Secrets Unsealed is going to be publishing this book uh, in, the, in the near future. And uh, there's another issue that is related to, to this whole issue, and uh, I'm not going to touch very much upon this point. But the women's ordination issue 
is related to what is happening in the church right now in terms of worship, in terms of, of the most holy place. It's a package deal. And uh, most, I found that most members of the church are not really informed about what the issues really are about when it comes to women's ordination. You know, basically the idea is, well, men and women are equal, right? So why can't women and, and men serve in the same positions in the church? That's the extent of the knowledge that many people have of the issues. But the issues are much more profound than that and they're related to this whole problem that we're facing in the church and so there are some other books that I want to recommend that are also available at our Secrets Unsealed booth as well as in Eugene Pruitt's booth um, one of them is called uh, Reflections on Women's Ordination it's a small book that I wrote uh, on what the conflict is not about it's not about equality it's not about ability uh, it, you know People have made it uh, what it isn't about. And so that book is a very important book. It's small. Um, another book is Women's Ordination, written by Eugene Pruitt. It's hot off the press. Uh, we also have some of the publications that were published way back 20 years ago when this uh, surfaced in the church. Um, one of them is Prove All Things. Excellent book, thick book, deals with almost all of the issues. And then uh, the uh, book, the first book I believe that was published is The Tip of an Iceberg by Raymond Holmes. Uh, we have that book available there as well, as well as other resources on the same topic. So I would recommend that you uh, stop by the, the booths, Secrets Unsealed and Eugene Pruitt's booth. And uh, I think it'll be a benefit uh, to get these materials and really become well informed. You know, um, ignorance, uh, is very dangerous at this time of human history. We have to be very well informed so that we can make informed decisions. Some of those decisions will be for life or death. So it's very important that we understand what the issues are so that we can come out on the right side. Now I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we ask the Lord to bless us in our study today. Father in heaven, we thank you for the awesome privilege of being here at GYC. We thank you that uh, there are far more than 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We thank you, Father, that uh, uh, there's a brilliant future for your church because there's an awakening going on. We ask, Lord, that as we study the issues that the church faces, that uh, you will bless our study together, that you will give us your wisdom, that you will give us open minds and open hearts, not only to understand, but to receive what you have for us. And we thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, this keeps on disappearing here. Um, it, might, it might not work, so there we go. I'm going to follow pretty well what we have on the screen so that you can visualize it. By the way, we're going to pass out a sheet of paper. And uh, if you would like to get everything I'm going to present uh, in written form, I'll be glad to send it to you, to your email address. So um, we'll, we'll do that probably the second session or maybe this afternoon. And uh, that way, you know, we'll be able to send you the full lectures. So you don't have to really worry about taking copious notes of what we're going to be studying.
there are five roles or five functions of Jesus Christ in the sanctuary service. Uh, and those five functions are here on the screen. We usually start our study of the sanctuary service in the court at the altar of sacrifice. But really that is not the place to begin a study of the sanctuary. The sanctuary actually begins in the camp. And the reason why it begins in the camp is, you see, the law of God demands absolute and total perfection. It does not allow the slightest deviation. How many of us can offer the law what the law requires? No one. And yet the law requires a perfect life. Now, what is the solution to that problem? The solution to that problem is that Jesus had to come and live in our midst before he died, face all of our temptations, and live a perfect life that he could offer the law in our place. That work he did when he came to dwell among us before his death. You see, before the lamb was killed, it had to be without blemish. So Jesus had to live a life without blemish before he went to the cross to offer his life. So uh, the first step is in the camp. Jesus lives a perfect life uh, in place of every single human being who has ever lived in the history of the world. Then the next step of Jesus in the sanctuary is in the court. What happened here? I'm not very good at using technology. I believe in audio-visual. Audio, audio because people can hear it and uh, visual because they can read it in the Bible. <laughs> the court. You see, the law of God not only requires absolute perfection, but if you don't offer the law perfection, the law says you've got to die. So Jesus not only had to live in our place, Jesus had to come and he had to die in our place. And he dies at the altar of sacrifice in the sanctuary. Then the third stage in the ministry of Christ in the sanctuary takes place in the holy place. There Jesus applies the benefits of his atonement to individuals who come to him in repentance and faith. In other words, he credits to their account his righteous life and death for sin and they are accepted in the beloved. In other words, the work that Jesus does in the camp and in the court is for every person who has ever lived. It's a corporate work. But you will only benefit from what he did in the camp and in the court if you claim it individually and personally. And that's what Jesus went to heaven to do. You see, in heaven, Jesus receives individual clients who through repentance and through confession and faith in Jesus, they come to Jesus and say, I blew it, I'm a sinner, I'm sorry. And then Jesus takes what he did in the camp and what he did in the court, and he, get, he applies it to our account. And God looks upon us as if we had never sinned. Amen. That's the intercessory work of Christ. And he does that for individuals. And that's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. In other words, 
salvation, Jesus was given for the whole world. But the second half of the verse says, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There you have the other, uh, the other aspect, which is claiming the benefits of what Jesus did. And then you have the work in the most holy place. Now, uh, when we come to Jesus and we come in repentance and we confess our sins and we claim the righteousness of Christ, uh, Jesus forgives our sins and our sins are placed in the sanctuary. Forgiven sins are placed in the sanctuary, covered by his blood. But what happens? The sins are in the sanctuary, which means that the sanctuary is defiled. And so then you have the most holy place stage. And the purpose of the most holy stage is to take all of those sins that have been confessed and that have been uh, repented of and to cleanse them, to take them out of the sanctuary, to cleanse the sanctuary. In other words, it's no longer to cleanse the sinner, it's to cleanse the record of the sinner in the sanctuary. That's the work that Jesus performs in the most holy place. And then uh, the last stage of the work of Christ is one that we don't really emphasize that much, takes place in the court again. And that is that once the sanctuary has been cleansed from all, all of the sins, the high priest brings out the record of the sins that have been forgiven previously and he places the ultimate responsibility upon the scapegoat and that ceremony took place at the entrance of the tent. And of course, the court represents the earth because the work of the court was performed by Jesus on earth. And we all know that that's fulfilled in Revelation 20 when Satan is exiled to this world for a thousand years. Now, the question that we want to ask at this point is, which of these stages of the work of Christ is present truth? Is it um, his work in the camp? Is that truth? Yes. Is it present truth? No. How about his work in the court? Is that truth? Is it present truth? No. How about his work in the holy place? Is that truth? Yes. Is it present truth? No. If we want to know what present truth is, it's very simple to determine it. All we have to do is find out where Jesus is and what he's doing now and preach that because that is present truth. Now listen to what I'm going to say. It's not that we can have present truth without the other truths. Because Jesus cannot cleanse the sanctuary unless he lived his perfect life. Unless he died for sin. Unless he put our sins in the sanctuary through his blood. He could never take them out. All of the other steps are steps that lead up to the step in the most holy place. But most Christians are all caught up in the court. And they have not moved with Jesus as Jesus moves in the sanctuary. So if we know where Jesus is now and where, what Jesus is doing now, we can know what we need to preach because we need to preach what Jesus is doing. Amen. 
because we have to work in harmony with him. Is that clear? So if Jesus today is in the most holy place, as Seventh-day Adventists believe, where should our message come from? It should be a most holy place message. The cross must be seen within the context of the most holy place. His perfect life must be seen in the context of the most holy place. His intercessory work must be seen in the context of the most holy place. In other words, the most holy place is the message, the present truth message that is to be proclaimed by the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. Now, let's, let's pursue this because this is a very, very important point. And it's all written here uh, so that you're able to follow along. I'm going to follow pretty slavishly the notes. A significant number of conservative Bible scholars... Adventist and non-Adventist believe that the seven churches represent seven consecutive periods of church history. We know that, right? Ephesus represents what? The Apostolic Church. Um, Smyrna symbolizes the church that was persecuted by the Roman emperors. Uh, Pergamum is the compromising church in the days of Constantine the Great. Thyatira, where Jezebel is at work, that harlot woman, represents the church of the Middle Ages, the papal church. Sardis represents the Protestant uh, movement. So you have a sequence in the churches that describe church history. Apostolic church, persecuted by the Roman emperors, entrance of apostasy into the church in the days of Pentecost, in the days of uh, Constantine, then you have Thyatira, which is the papal church. And then you have Sardis, the Protestant Reformation. And then you come to church number six, which is the church of Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. Now, Philadelphia is church number six, which means that it must be the church that comes after what? After the Protestant Reformation, right? and after the period of the papacy, but before the second coming, because you can't have the second coming before the seventh church. So it's after the papacy, after 1798 and the, and the Protestant Reformation, before the second coming. Now it's interesting to notice that the seventh church, the name of the seventh church is what? Laodicea. Do you know what Laodicea means? It means judging the people. So Philadelphia is the church immediately before the judgment. Are you with me or not? This is important. I have a very structured mind. The, the Lord, it's all from the Lord. It's not me. Ha things have to have a sequence and they have to fit together and they have to make sense. Nothing really can really be out of place. If something's out of place, I can't sleep. <laughs> and so we're going to follow a sequence here. It's not rocket science. It's very easy when you follow the sequence. So is this clear then, the sequence? So church number six, Philadelphia, comes before the second coming of Christ. 
And it comes, and the next church is the church of Laodicea, judging the people, which means that the next church is going to be the church of the judgment. Now, let's go to Revelation chapter 3 and verses 7 and 8, and notice what is said about the church of Philadelphia. It says there in Revelation 3, 7, and 8, and we have it on the screen, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, what do you use the key for? To open a door, right. Who has the key of David, and what was David? What was David? He was a king, okay? So he has the key of David. He who opens, and no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. So with the key, something is going to be shut, and something is going to be opened. Notice verse 8. I know your works. See, I have set before you, this that is before the church of Philadelphia, I have set before you, what? An open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So what is set before the church of Philadelphia? The church right before the judgment? An open door. Now the question is, which door? Well, the sanctuary had three doors. It had the door that led from the camp into the court. It had the door that led from the court into the holy place. And it had a door that led from the holy place to the most holy place. So the question is, which of these three doors is placed before the church of Philadelphia? Is it the door that leads from the camp to the court, from the court to the holy place, or from the holy to the most holy place? Well, let me ask, can it be the door that leads from the camp to the court? No. Do you know why? Because Jesus went through that door when he was on earth when he went to die. And Philadelphia is church number six, way down at the end of, of church history. Are you with me or not? So it can't be the first door. Can it be the door that leads from the court to the holy place? No. When did Jesus enter that door? He entered that door when he ascended to heaven to begin his intercession in the holy place. And the church of Philadelphia is number six at the end of church history. And so it can't be the door from the camp to the court because Jesus entered through that door when he went to die on the cross. It can't be the door that leads into the holy place because Jesus entered that door when he ascended to heaven and began his intercession. So how many doors does that leave us? It only leaves us one door. It must be that the door that is placed before the church of Philadelphia is the door that leads into the most holy place. Into the most holy place. Now, later on in the book of Revelation, we have a description of this open door. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19. Interestingly enough, this is in the context of the sixth trumpet. We believe that the trumpets also describe church history. 
You know, we, uh, there are some that are applying the trumpets to the future. Uh, some are applying the trumpets to the past. Some are applying to them to the past and the future. I personally am a historicist. I believe that the trumpets uh, began to be fulfilled in apostolic times and they're fulfilled in sequence culminating with the close of probation and the second coming of Christ. Just like the churches. and Just like the seals. And so... This is taking place, Revelation 11 verse 19, is taking place in, in the context of the sixth trumpet. Notice, sixth church, open door, sixth trumpet must be close to the same time of church history. And notice what this verse says. It, it mentions an open door under the sixth trumpet. It says, then the temple of God, that word temple is interesting, we'll come to it in a minute. The temple of God was opened in heaven. And what was seen in the temple? And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. So a door is open, and where does that door lead to? It leads to where the ark of the covenant is. Now, notice the bullet points that we have here. The context is the sixth trumpet, which is parallel to the sixth church. And there's a note of clarification here. I don't have time to get into this, but Revelation 11:19 is not really the conclusion of chapter uh, 11. It really is the introduction to the rest of the book. Revelation is not in chronological order. And um, I've dealt very extensively with the structure of, uh, of the book of Revelation. You know, sometimes we make the mistake just of interpreting symbols. But unless we understand how the book of Revelation was organized, how, how the sequence of events, we're going to get all confused. Because Revelation works in cycles. You know, it's not linear where you say, okay, I'm going to see what's going to happen from the days of Christ until Jesus comes. And so everything is in chronological order. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very meticulously structured book. And if you're able to know how the events fit together, you'll be able to decipher the book. Now, the word temple is the word naos. It's used 16 times in Revelation. There are two words for temple in the Greek. One is hieron, which refers to the total structure. It's never used in Revelation. The word temple is naos. It, it refers to the most holy place. Now, how do we know that? Because it says that the temple is opened, and what is seen? The Ark of His Covenant. Let me ask you, at what festival in Israel was the Ark of the Covenant seen? When the temple was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant came into view? On the Day of Atonement. So, so in other words, what we're saying is that uh, Revelation 11, verse 19, is describing the beginning of what? of the Day of Atonement, the beginning of the judgment. So are you seeing the relationship between uh, the Church of Philadelphia and Revelation 11 verse 19? Sixth church, sixth trumpet. Sixth church, open door. Sixth trumpet tells you where the open door leads. It leads to where the Ark of the Covenant is for the beginning of the judgment. Now, let's see, I, I got lost here. 
bear with me. Okay, we're back. Now, Daniel 7, Daniel 7 corroborates this view that we noticed from Philadelphia, Revelation 11, Daniel 7, and we're going to notice that Revelation 13 and 14 all corroborate and give us the same structure. Now, Daniel 7 presents a sequence of earthly powers. What does the lion represent? Babylon. What about the bear? The leopard, the dragon, the ten horns, the divisions of Rome. And then the little horn represents the papacy, and it rules for how long? 1,260 years. And then after the little horn rules for time, times, and the dividing of time, you have a judgment scene. The father moves. Right? The throne has wheels. The Father moves. And He sits on a throne. And He's moved by the angels, by the way. And we're going to notice in Daniel chapter 7, this is very, very clear. And it says that the judgment sits and the books are open. So when does the judgment begin according to the sequence of Daniel? It begins after the period of papal oppression, after 1798. Does that fit the chronology of the Church of Philadelphia? And does that fit the chronology that we noticed in Revelation 11, verse 19? Same sequence, same place in the sequence. So in other words, this chapter gives us the chronology of the judgment. It must take place sometime after 1798, but before the second coming of Christ. Because the next event after the judgment is, uh, you know, Christ taking over the kingdom with the saints. Now, there in Daniel 7, we also, we not only have uh, the father moving, but then after the father moves, the chariot that took him someplace now comes back and picks up Jesus. That's in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And then the chariot takes the Son of Man, to where the Father is. And why does Jesus go into the presence of His Father? Daniel 7 makes it very clear. Daniel 7 says that He goes in there to receive the kingdom. So why does Jesus go in to where the Father went? Why, is the, why does the judgment sit and the, why are the books open? Because Jesus is going to get His what? He's going to get, receive his kingdom. Now you say, now what does that have to do with the judgment? You know, when we talk about the kingdom, we usually think of the kingdom as a geographical thing. Oh, you know, the kingdom of, uh, of such and such a place. But, but in scripture, the kingdom is composed of the members that belong to the kingdom. In other words, the emphasis is not upon the geographical territory. The emphasis is upon the subjects of the kingdom. That's the kingdom, is the subjects. So if Jesus is going into the most holy place to get his kingdom, 
and a judgment is taking place, how is it that Jesus receives the kingdom? Well, the purpose of the judgment, folks, is to reveal who is truly a member of Christ's kingdom. And what needs to happen in order to reveal who is a true member of Christ's kingdom? The records have to be opened. And the life of the individual has to be examined to reveal who truly belongs to Christ's kingdom. So in other words, Daniel 7 is describing the time when the Father enters into the most holy place. He moves. So if he's moving into the most holy place for the judgment, he must have been where before? He must have been in the holy place. And he's moving, and he, the judgment sets, the books are open. Jesus then comes in. He's going to receive the kingdom, but in order to receive the kingdom, which is mainly the subjects of his kingdom, it's necessary to examine each one of those who claim the name of Jesus to reveal if they're truly subjects of his kingdom or not. And what happens when the, when the judgment is finished? When every case has been examined, is the kingdom of Jesus made up? The kingdom of Jesus is made up. In other words, the kingdom is the people. The subjects of the kingdom. Now, some people ask, they say, well, why do we need a judgment? Well, let me ask you. Does the church have true and counterfeit believers? Yeah? Of course. Are there, uh, uh, is there wheat and tares in the church? Do the, do the tares claim to be followers of Christ? Yeah. Does the gospel net gather good and bad fish? The throwing of the gospel net is the preaching of the gospel. It gathers good and bad fish. So does there need to be a separation of good and bad fish? Absolutely. Is there going to be a separation of wheat and tares? Yeah, we don't do that. When is that done? In the judgment. Are there wise and foolish virgins? Do they all have lamps? Do they all claim to be waiting for the, for the bridegroom? Yeah. So how do you know who's, who's true and who isn't? You have to examine the records and reveal who is a genuine child of the kingdom and who isn't. You remember the parable that Jesus gave of the wedding hall, the man who snuck in with, uh, without a wedding garment? Did he think he had a right to be there? Do you think he was a pagan? No, he claimed to be a Christian. He says, I claim, you know, I have the right to be here. But he didn't have the wedding garment. He was a hypocrite. Are there many among those who, who follow the Lord that say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, I don't know you? Absolutely. Are there those who even disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness? Absolutely. Are there many who have the form of godliness but don't have the power of godliness? Absolutely. And so the purpose of the judgment, listen, the purpose of the judgment is simply to reveal if your claim of Christ is genuine or not. And do you know how that is determined? by your life. 
Jesus did not say, by their faith ye shall know them. He said, by their fruit ye shall know them. We are saved by grace through faith, but we are judged by works. Because works show if our faith was real or not. And so are you understanding the purpose of the judgment, of the opening of the door to the most holy place? Now does God know everything? Does God need this judgment? No, God doesn't need this judgment. But God knows that the universe doesn't know everything. And there's all these people that claim Jesus. Some of them even live pretty moral lives, but inside there's problems. So the records are going to be open. Jesus is going to say, now, let me reveal who is a subject of my kingdom. And when Jesus finishes the judgment, his kingdom is made up. Because it's been revealed every single person who has a right to belong to his kingdom. Are you with me or not? Now, what great truths do we find centered in the most holy place? This is interesting. Where were the Ten Commandments? In the most holy place. So is that part of the most holy place message? Why do you suppose Christians say the law was nailed to the cross? Do you think if they moved into the most holy place they would say that? No. What else is in the most holy place? The Sabbath. In the center of God's holy law. And by the way, the Sabbath is highlighted in the most holy place. Remember Ellen White had this vision of a halo around the Sabbath? Commandment? And some people make fun of Ellen White. Well, 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 does the Bible talk about that halo? The fact is that in the ark, besides the Ten Commandments, with the Sabbath, there was another way of highlighting the Sabbath. And that was, there was a pot of manna. And by the way, Ellen White says that the Sabbath is a test for God's people. That is not an invention from Ellen White. Because if you go back to the original manna episode, God says, I am giving them manna to test them to see if they will walk in my law or not. So you have the Sabbath as a test in the most holy place because of the manna. Do you have health reform in the most holy place? Yes, you have. You say, well, where is that? The manna had another purpose. And that was to teach Israel a healthy diet. The spirit of prophecy makes that very, very clear. And Numbers 11, where, you, where it talks about, remember the quail? God was teaching his people that he wanted them to have a simple diet. Simple health principles that he wanted them to follow so that they could be healthy, happy, and holy. So in the most holy place, you also have the message of health reform. Do you have in the most holy place the message of a judgment? Yes, because once a year in the most holy place is where you had the judgment of Israel. The great day of atonement, the Yom Kippur. So the judgment hour message is centered in the most holy place. How about the state of the dead? 
The state of the dead is in the most holy place too. You say, well, how is that? Well, who was the first person to be judged in 1844? Adam was the first person to be judged. So where was Adam in 1844? How could he be in heaven if he hadn't been judged yet? In fact, if the judgment begins with Adam, then nobody went to heaven when they died. Because people would not have gone to heaven before they were judged. Are you with me? And so, and so you have this cluster of truths. Yes? It most certainly, certainly does. Yes, it does. And it also teaches life only in Christ. Because the dead rod represented the Christ. And Jesus says, though, I, though, I, uh, though he died, I am alive forevermore. And so you have the state of the dead illustrated also with the rod. And then, of, of course, I won't get into this idea, but it's a, it's a very important point. Uh, the Aaron's rod is in the context of Korah's rebellion, which has to do with roles in the church. It has to do with, uh, you know, Korah, he, he was a Levite, but he says, I want to be a priest. And Moses says, yeah, but you weren't called to be a priest. See, now you, you, know, you, <laughs> you got me riled up. <laughs> but you're not called to be a priest, Moses says. Well, well, who do you think you are, Moses? You and Aaron take too much upon yourselves. He says, all of us can be priests. And so Moses says, okay, bring your censers. 250 of them bring their censers. And you know what happened. And then the people complained. Said, Lord, why did you kill those men? The Lord says, oh, you've got a problem too? <laughs> Folks, we cannot trifle with God. We're going to see uh, in our session tomorrow and on Sabbath that this issue of women's ordination is not about women's ordination. It's about how much authority you give to the Bible and how you interpret the Bible. That is the real issue. The way that the Bible is being mishandled is, is disgraceful. Anyway, let's get back to this less controversial issue. Okay, so are you seeing in Daniel chapter 7 the same sequence? Let's review. You have the church of Philadelphia, church number 6. The next church is judging the people. And before Philadelphia, God places a what? Open door. Are you with me? Can that be the door to the court? To the holy place? No, to the most holy place. Then we took a look at Revelation 11, verse 19, sixth trumpet. Where does the open door lead? Where the Ark of the Covenant is, sixth trumpet, end of human history. And then you have Daniel chapter 7. After the, after the papacy's dominion, 1798, then you have the scene of the judgment in the most holy place. And then after that, the second coming. Now let's look at the scenario in Revelation 13. Revelation 13, verse 2. 
you're going to have the same beasts of Daniel 7 all over again. It says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Do we have the same beasts that are mentioned in Daniel 7? Yeah. You have a leopard, you have a bear, you have a lion, and you have a dragon, which in Daniel 7 is the nondescript beast, that dragon beast. So we have the same sequence, lion, bear, leopard, dragon, ten horns, and then it says that the beast rules for how long? It rules for 42 months. Is that the same period that the little horn ruled? Yes. And then the beast is what? Is wounded. When did that happen? 1798. See, it's following the same sequence of Daniel 7. And then notice in chapter 14, chapter 14 and verses 6 and 7, chapter 14 verses 6 and 7, after it mentions all this sequence of beasts, it says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Let me ask you, while that is happening, can people be saved? That's kind of a dumb question. Why would you preach the gospel if people can't be saved? So when the first angel is preaching his message, the everlasting gospel, uh, it's so that people can be saved, right? Amen. But now notice what the angel says. In verse 7 he continues saying, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Not will come, has come. So I ask you this, does the judgment begin while the first angel is proclaiming his message? Yes. yes. So must the judgment begin in probationary time? Are you with me? Yes. So must the judgment take place before the second coming? Yeah. So the judgment take place during probationary time before the second coming of Christ. Because while the gospel is being preached, the hour of judgment has come. And then it continues saying, And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, Revelation 14 verses 6 and 7 is the earthly announcement of the heavenly event in Daniel 7. Let me explain. In Daniel 7 you have all of these earthly powers that rule and then you have this heavenly event, the beginning of the judgment. What good would it do for God to have a heavenly judgment if no one knew about it on earth? It has to be announced. In Daniel 7 there's no reference to this event being announced on earth. It simply speaks about, you know, the Father going, the judgment sitting, the books opening, Jesus going in to receive the kingdom, and after the judgment he receives the kingdom with the saints, and, and the kingdom lasts forever and ever. That's all it says. It's happening in heaven. And so, 
It's necessary for this to be proclaimed. Where do you find the message proclaiming the beginning of that judgment? In Revelation 14. And what I want to show you is that the, the three angels' message, folks, contains the same elements as the most holy place. But the, the three angels' message is the proclamation of the heavenly event. Let's look at the elements of the three angels' message. The law. The first angel's message says, fear God. I challenge you to look up that expression, fear God, in Scripture. You'll find that in the majority of the cases, it has to do with keeping God's commandments. And I'll give you one example. Ecclesiastes 12, the last verse says, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the total or the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment. See, there you have judgment related to fearing God and keeping His commandments. That's only one verse. There, you, you check out the expression, fear God means keep His commandments. Why would that message be given? Because Jesus has entered where the Ten Commandments are. Let me ask you, is the Sabbath in the first angel's message? Yes, worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. So the message on earth reflects the Sabbath in the most holy place. Do we believe that the Sabbath is a test? Do you find that in the message? Of course. You take the third angel's message, it says, whoever receives the mark of the beast will be lost. So Revelation says you should receive what? The seal of God. So Ellen White speaks about the Sabbath issue being the final test. And you have that revealed in the fact that there's manna in the most holy place of the sanctuary. Does the first angel's message proclaim the judgment? Just like you have in Daniel 7. Yes, the hour of his judgment is come. So basically the three angels' message, folks, is simply an earthly proclamation of the most holy place. And everything that the most holy place stands for. Is the state of the dead there in the first angel's message? Of course it is. I mentioned before that if the judgment begins at a certain point in time, and the judgment begins with a certain individual, Adam, and then moves chronologically throughout history, then nobody went to heaven or to hell when they died. Because God would not reward them before judging them. So that means that they must be what? They must be dead until the judgment. They're not in heaven or in hell. And by the way, the third angel's message ends by saying, Blessed are those who die henceforth in the Lord. They will rest from their labors. So clearly, uh, the conclusion of the third angel's message tells us that death is a rest. Does the first angel's message deal with health reform? It most certainly does. Not only does, this, does the uh, first angel's message say, Fear God 
it also says give glory to him. Have you read the number of times that the Apostle Paul says, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit. Therefore, if you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So health reform is involved. Uh, yes, brother. Yeah, those, those are exceptions to the rule. But, you know, I, I don't have any thus saith the Lord about this, but I'm sure that their cases will also be examined in due course to show that they have a right to be there. Yes, uh, th there are exceptional cases, uh, you know, in Scripture. You have a special resurrection. You have two great resurrections, but then you have a special resurrection also. And in the same way, you know, and, and as far as Moses is concerned, that's a good question. As far as Moses was concerned, the devil railed against Christ for resurrecting Moses. In fact, Ella White describes, she said that, that the devil said to Jesus, how dare you come and take my subject from me? And Jesus says, no, he's not yours, he's mine. Hey, he struck the rock, he disobeyed you, and the wages of sin is death. And Jesus says, yes, but he repented, he accepted my sacrifice. You haven't been sacrificed yet. And Jesus says, yeah, but I'm going to be. <laughs> and the devil says, but you haven't. Jesus says, but I will. And so Jesus took him. And White says that the devil railed against Jesus. So there are cases where things are done in advance, but those people still have to be examined in the judgment. Okay, now uh, we have about two or three minutes and then we'll take our break. So let me ask you, what is present truth for today? What would you say is present truth for today? Jesus died on the cross. Is that, is that truth? It's truth. It's a beautiful, wonderful truth. Indispensable for all other truths. But if we want to know what present truth is today, it's a cluster of truths. Have you noticed that what is in the most holy place are the distinctive doctrines of the Adventist church? Those doctrines that distinguish us from all other Christians are in the most holy place. Are those points the points that are going to be the issue of conflict at the end of time? The law, the Sabbath, the state of the dead? Absolutely. And we're going to notice in the second hour that, that Ellen White says, those who are not firmly rooted in the most holy place will be blown away. Because that's where the distinctive teachings of the Adventist church are. And folks, it is a tragedy that we have really forgotten what the essence and substance of our message is. Now what we'll do now is, uh, oh, we still have five minutes. And then we'll take a 15-minute break. So are you understanding what present truth is? Yes. Now, I need to mention also something very interesting. In the message to the Church of Philadelphia, there is also a mention of the synagogue of Satan. After saying that, you see, there's two kinds of believers in Philadelphia. There's the believers before whom the open door is placed and they look into the open door by faith 
And then there's a group of individuals who are the synagogue of Satan and they're enemies of those who go through the open door. And of course we have to discuss what the synagogue of Satan is and we're going to do that in the second hour. Now in the book of Revelation, let me ask you, after the first angel's message, you know the first angel's message has the basic message of the Seventh-day Adventist church. The first angel's message is, is the present truth message of our church. How did the religious world react to the first angel's message? They rejected it, right? And therefore we have a second angel's message. What does the second angel's message say? Babylon is fallen. So let me ask you, is Babylon uh, the Muslims and the Buddhists? And the Hindus? And the atheists? No. What is Babylon? Babylon, ba Babylon in 1844 is apostate Protestantism. But it includes Catholicism before that. The papacy. Do you know why Babylon became Babylon? Because it rejected the first angel's message. So it's interesting, you have the first angel's message, which is a judgment hour message, that which takes place inside the open door, and then it speaks about Babylon. In the message to the church of Philadelphia, it speaks about an open door that leads into the most holy place, and then it speaks of the synagogue of Satan. So the synagogue of Satan is synonymous to what? What is it synonymous to? Babylon. Maybe that didn't register. So let me go over it again. It's important. Church of Philadelphia, God places an open door. Where does that open door lead? The most holy place. What's going to take place in the most holy place? The judgment. Is there a cluster of truths revealed there? Yes. How does the church of Philadelphia react? There's a, a faithful group, right? But what happens with most? Most of them reject it. And they're called what? the synagogue of Satan. And then you have, in Revelation chapter 14, you have the proclamation of the judgment hour message. The most holy place message. How does the religious world respond to the preaching of the first angel's message? All of the cluster of truths that are contained in the most holy place. They reject it and so they become what? Babylon. And so the synagogue of Satan is synonymous with Babylon. Well, let's take a break. Fifteen minutes and then we'll come back. I hope you'll come back. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.